Welcome to the MacFab. You look so confused, Stephen. <laughs> no, I'm just waiting for you to intro. Okay. Welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Parker Dolman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 268. <laughs> we got to get good at that sometime, right? <laughs> so um I've been working on my Jeep a lot, you know. Yeah, go figure. Yeah, go figure, right? It's always on it's always got parts falling off of it and going back onto it. You purposefully make parts fall off of it. Yes, that, that is true. It doesn't actually it doesn't come apart on its own yet. Um so I've been I've been working with a uh brushless fan temperature controller that's on it. I'm not developing it or anything like that. I, it's something like you can just buy. Okay, I think it's called Delta PAG P A G. Um, so if you Google that, it's like a brushless fan setup. Um, they're really nice. They're like one of the most powerful fans on the market for automotive stuff. Um, what is funky though, is the controller that you get with it. It's a really nice setup where like you can control two fans with it. Um, it has a temperature probe built in and it's got a little screen so you can adjust the temperature cutoffs, all that good stuff. But it's weird on how it functions in terms of um like its override signals that you you can give it because usually what you want it is when your let's say your air conditioner in your car turns on when that turns on you want to run your fans so you're cooling down the the uh condenser on your car to cool the the gas down or i guess at that point it's a liquid the uh the cool the liquid down after compressing it um and so most temperature controllers for cars they are they basically read that the what's called the clutch on your compressor so your your belt is spinning and when the clutch engages it engages the compressor to the to the pulley and um so you, that's a high voltage signal so or high voltage 12 volts um but what's interesting is this controller doesn't use the typical high voltage like or a high signal to activate the override it's an active low it doesn't make any sense to me because this is the only time i've seen that for a controller and like i sent them an email about it i'm like hey is there like a way to like flip this around because basically like you're forcing everyone to like you basically have to build logic to flip a 12 volt signal into an active ground signal instead they never responded. Um, and so like, I'm basically just going to take a relay and just uh, do an inverse function with the relay, which is kind of annoying that I have to do that. But, you know, it is what it is. But the other weird thing about it is most controllers will tell you what the temperature sender is. So you, you can like replace it with something that fits better. Like, you know, if you have a different, um, if you have a different, uh, NPT, you know, ni national pipe thread tap uh, size. You can use the right size uh, sender for it. <laughs> uh, ed educate me real quick. I'm not. What is a sender? Uh, like the temperature sensor. Oh, I thought you said sender, not sensor. yeah, sender. So, in automotive terms, sensors aren't sensors; they're senders. Oh God, really? Yeah. So some people call them sensors. You can call them both, but the automotive world it's really a sender because it's more of a it's sending a signal. Yeah, it's a more old school term 
an automotive. Yeah, yeah. Like, like my, my father contacted me the other day, and he was working on one of his motorcycles. And it, it was kind of cute because he was describing one of the circuits, and he's like, it has this thing called a condenser in it. He's like, you would probably call this a capacitor. And I'm like, thanks, Dad. I know what a condenser <laughs> is. <laughs> probably a similar idea there. So sender, sensor, those are the same things. Okay, uh, so so next time I go to get my car fixed, I can flex a little bit. So they might think you're weird too. Yeah, I think, they, they probably I think do. it is a more old school term. So newer cars, they just call them sensors. And sender is more like an oil sender, oil pressure sender. I don't know if a sensor was a type. Anyways, regardless, they usually tell you what what kind it is so you can get a different kind, like a different uh, physical shape for it. This one also doesn't. And I asked them what it was because I needed a different physical package dimension for the sensor and they didn't respond back either um so i guess it's like it's amazing products the, the customer service so far is junk um so what i did like any engineer would do is i just profiled the the sensor <laughs> but you know hot water and a little temperature probe oh yeah and it's a it's a typical ntc you know 10k thermistor Nothing too fancy. So I just bought another one that would fit, and I plugged it in, and it worked great. Um, <laughs> they, they can't protect against you doing that. That's the that's one of the funny things about backdooring stuff as an engineer. Like, yeah, you can like they'll, they'll have these like really special things where it's like you have to buy ours. It's like, ooh, I think I can figure it out. And so and so the reason why I went with theirs is because it those the brushless fans you can PWM the pin, so you can speed control it. Which is actually really nice when, like, um, you so you can speed control. So it's like, okay, it's starting to come up the temp. So don't blast, you know, three thousand cfm of air through it. Just do a little bit until like it heats up more. Then ramp the fan up. So like all that stuff works great. But and I so I got their controller. I'm probably going to take my oscilloscope and then probe that PWM line so I can get what it's what its duty cycle and frequency is and just i'm actually almost thinking about rolling my own controller just so i don't have to put a relay in here to flip that signal the ac compressor signal so so wait so this thing has pwm control but also an override pin yeah the override is so that if like okay the ac's on compressor's on and generate heat so go ahead and run the fan But then you could do crazy, funky stuff like um, you can if, if you actually made your own controller, you could do like interesting profiles like, OK, the engine's just started up. And so it's engine's cold, um, but you're running the air conditioner. So maybe not run the fan at 100 percent then. Run you don't need 100 percent of that CFM just to cool the condenser down. Um, yeah, you could you could make all kinds of profiles and curves based off of the logic of what is happening based on time or what's actually running at the moment. Yeah. Um, will I do that? I don't know. Well, you are making a controller, right? For different stuff though. Oh, okay. So this isn't. Yeah. This is it. just going to be its own standalone thing. So I didn't actually have to design something. Now I'm probably going to end up having to design something. So, so just so I can get away from have using on your dash, right? You, you, like what? you're actually going to be able to adjust things from your dash. With the temperature controller for the fan? Yeah. No, it's mounted under the hood. Oh, okay. So this is like a set it and forget it thing. 
Yeah, you set it uh, when you first set up your your temperatures, and that's it. Oh, uh, okay. I thought when when you were suggesting that it had a screen, it's something that you could optimize the performance of your fans. No, 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 no. Well, I guess technically you can mount it in your cab if you wanted, but yeah. no, I'm just like, yeah, I'm going to set it to like turn on at like you know 200 Fahrenheit and turn off when it's like 195, like some standard, like what normal cars do. Is there is there like a uh, like a written standard for that? Not really. It's usually in that range, though. Because what you want to do is you want this fan. You want the fan to cycle. Um, and so you just kind of set it up to cycle. Yeah, but in Houston, like there's no cycling, right? It's, it's it depends. Yeah, it depends. If you're if you're it's 100 degrees outside and you're stuck in traffic with the AC on max, it's pretty much going to be on all the time. Yeah, but that's that's normal. Depends on what your normal is, right? But but they are continuous uh, duty cycle, right? They they can't Correct. be yeah, it's continuous duty cycle. Um, I guess just efficiency is is the reason why you would want it to be controllable. Yes, yeah. Um. So yeah, maybe I should open up that like crack that box open because this is the thing is like if it's outside the unit outside if I make that invert inverter circuit, it's like. I had to pull it on the outside and then I had to give it 12 volts, right? For the relay to flip right, correctly and all that stuff. But what if I just cracked open the box and then I, then that I can solder a logic level inverter in there. Yeah. I, I, you know, I was going to ask earlier, like why a relay and I get it because it's external to the box. Um, yeah. But yeah, I bet you, you could very easily just put a transistor that just flips things around in there. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> You're giving yourself a project. It's yeah. it, it's a box that you purchased that wasn't a project that turned into a project that turned into a deeper project. Yeah, it's <sighs> <laughs> like I'm like I'm de- like going back a couple episodes where I was talking about like the multi gauges for sensors or senders and cars and stuff, and you I, I can't find anything that just like. I, I actually try like probably like once a week before I even start working on it. I'm like, there has to be something out there that's like I can just use like something on Etsy that someone's designed or an open source thing. I can just get built. It's like n- no one has anything that's like that. That's just like I want like an Arduino shield that I plug on and just I do the code part. I'm Doesn't I'm it? kind of thinking of like automotive parts on Etsy and they they have <laughs> They have like a nice floral print on them and they say live, laugh, love on the side in script. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's quite a bit of electronics on Etsy. So, is there really? I, I don't forget yeah. Etsy. Very oh, no, I'm thinking of Tendi. Okay. Yeah. I was like, Etsy doesn't seem very electronic. No, you're right. You're right. I was thinking of Tendi. Yes. Tendi has a lot of electronics on it. You know, maybe we should start uh, the first or or whatever uh, the, the 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 most in depth official electronics place on the on Etsy. You could sell pinball controllers on Etsy, <laughs> handcrafted and built. You're you're into love. the controller world, aren't you? You do a lot of controllers. I do a lot of controls. Yeah, at least hardware controls. I don't do a lot of the firmware though. 
but the fan controller is definitely you know i actually should open it up anyways and just see what kind of microcontroller is in there too i mean okay a box like that has to have a controller of some sort some it's kind got of, a microcontroller for it's sure it's got a it. controller it has some way to read back the temperature so it has some kind of well you said it was an ntc right yeah, it's anti- so it's it's probably got a resistor bridge in there, and that's it. Right, and then and then it has some kind of driver output for the fans. Yep, and some power conditioning. Yeah, something. and then it hooks up to a looks like a custom like LED screen, like it's like a segmented screen, but it's not a it's not a stock one that I've ever seen. It's Why does it have a screen one. if you mount it under your dash? Is it just so that you can select things? Or yeah, so you can select what temperature it's turns off and on and then the, then basically after you set it the screen just turns off it goes in the, the screen goes through sleep mode interesting that seems yeah. like i mean that's something that you will set and then you'll never set it again right most well unless you repurpose it but yes yeah yeah oh this thing has multiple uses well you can it's this it's more this product is more for like race car application than, oh. than Jeep application. Oh, so so this is a fine-tuning tweaker box. Yeah, yeah. It's for tweaking and stuff like that. But I'm like, I'm probably going to set it, a, like, when I fire it all up, and it'll probably take a couple days to set it to get the temperatures just right for the fan, and then I'll be like, okay, it's done. <laughs> see, see, what was going through my mind is, because, of course, I think about it in terms of manufacturing, like, would it be cheaper to instead just have a small USB port on the side and a computer application that allows you to select five different profiles or something like that. And that saves the cost of having to write firmware uh, for a screen and having to source a screen for, for what ends up being very low usage part. You know? Yeah. I, I actually do agree with that is um, it also displays the temperature. Like if you press the button, it will display temperature, which would be really useful trying to figure out like when it's turning on and turning off at, um, and so you could set it without it. This is also the thing with the automotive industry or hobbyists, I should say, is a lot of them are very adverse to computers or computer controlled anything. Hmm. So even a fan controller. It is having, a computer control. It is a computer in there <laughs> at, at the barest sense. Yeah. But it's just one of those. Now you're asking someone to go get their a, a computer to hook up into their hot rod. Right, and they, and they they drag out a whole tower and everything. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's weird. So I do understand why they don't do it, why a lot of customer uh, companies don't do it. But like my digital dash I have for my Wagoneer, I would have loved to have that. Like if I can just plug a USB and then do all the settings like on my computer, like be amazing. But no, they they went through all the effort to have Bluetooth for it, so you could Bluetooth connect your an app on your phone. Ugh. And I'm just like, oh my, come on, just give me a USB connection. Is this one, yeah. I was about to say, if this was a hacker maker, it, it that little box would be Wi-Fi connected, so you would have to be near your house and then connect to your network. Oh, because that's ESP eighty two sixty six something in there, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just one of those mentalities, kind of like for me at least, it's like. Why are you think like someone my age would be like, oh yeah, Bluetooth, blah 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 blah. It's awesome. It's like no, I just want like it's the engineer in me that's like no, just give me a wired connection. Like give me a give me a ninety six k zero port. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you can really get under the hood with that. 
But yeah, I should pop open that that controller box and see what's actually in there. And um, because that would actually be uh, if it's see and see how easy it would be to invert that signal. If it's what, um, what, what's the voltage levels on that signal? Is it 12? twelve volts zero? Yeah, okay. yeah. twelve volts a high, and then zero is is zero volts. Well, ground. I mean, okay. So here's the thing: if 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 it's twelve and zero, then whatever controller they have in there already has logic, or or already has level transition to get it up to zero, or just a resistor divider. Yeah, potentially, yeah, but but I mean that's even works in your favor because then the, then there's pads for you to install yeah. something on, right? Install something on it. Yep. So I, I, it's it's one of those put an inverter in there, and if I if you if I'm feeling really if it's if it's something that I have a programmer for, that might be like one of those. Okay, let's let's go in here and and write our own firmware now. Because then you can do the profile part. Now you're okay. <laughs> I was, I was, I was that's actually funny easier though than building my projects. own hardware. Your projects just spiraled downwards. <laughs> <laughs> Rewriting firmware for somebody else's product that you have no clue about. I love that. That's uh, though, this is the interesting thing about that though is it that might sound harder, but. I could probably if I if I had the programmer for what let's say it was a a, a pick in there, or even better, let's say it's an AVR three twenty eight P, you know, Atmel chip. Oh, they're the same thing now, right? <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> it's your daily reminder that Microchip bought Atmel. <laughs> yeah, that was what like a year and a half or two years ago. Dude, it was longer than that. Was it? Oh god. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm I, okay friend of mine the other day uh made made a whole uh argument that what was it, it was she she was saying something she was having a, a chat with somebody and she said something ridiculously like it was like goofy and kind of stupid uh but it was one sounds of those, like perfect for this podcast yeah exactly uh it was it was one of those situations where she said something where it's like i don't people good or something like that. And she was just like, I'm sorry. I haven't seen people for like eight months in COVID. And and I feel like that's now an excuse that's valid. Uh, like across the board where it's just like, I don't remember how long ago that happened. Because COVID just destroyed my concept of time. It hap- It started a whole year ago. Like last week. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last week, my, my company was like, everyone go home. And... Yeah, I don't. I there's there's people in my company that I've only seen virtually, and I'm a small company. Yeah, well, it's the same thing at Macrofab. There's some there's actually some new employees that I only seen through a computer screen. It's kind of weird to think about that way. Yeah, I actually did some training last week uh, for just some general soldering stuff, and um, I've realized that all the people virtual I trained, soldering. <laughs> yeah, virtual. Uh, I, all the people that we did training on, I was in their interviews, and I think maybe like two or three of them I've actually like been face to face with. I I'm definitely cracking open that controller like tonight or tomorrow. See what's in there. See what makes it tick. Well, so what do you what are you hoping on being in there? 
328p <laughs> so it's easy for you to write a, any any controller that i have a soft a, a what's the right word um tool set already installed on my computer like oh. what is my i'm looking at this like what is the easiest path to make that signal not ground reference or ground active i guess um which is why did they do it that way if i would have known that before i bought it i would not have bought it oh really i would have bought the fan the fan's great i would have bought a different controller for it yeah i mean the question is are there other alternatives that like suit your needs so the digital dash on the wagon controls its fan. And uh, I bought the same fan basically for it, for the wagon. So that it worked great. And that's why I went with the same fan. I'm like, oh, they have a, and my Jeep doesn't have a digital dash. It just has all the stock stuff. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to use their controller. And it's got this weird 12 volt or it's a ground active for the override. And I'm like, this is so weird. Whatever. I'll figure it out. But it's like I'd rather spend a day, a day, like a Saturday writing code than cobbling together a, a inverter with a relay. Just because it's like I don't want that relay being under the hood. Just like it, whenever I open the hood, I'll, I'll always look at that relay and be like, I don't like you. <laughs> Your entire job is to invert a signal and you're like the size of a strawberry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> Hang on. I, I, I got something uh, for you. Give me just give me a, a quick second. Uh, okay, because this whole chat has got me uh, has got me going. This will probably end up in the uh, in the Slack channel at one point in time. Um, this is super critical. This is what we do on the MacFab Engineering podcast. We um, we make things while we're while we're chatting. Yeah. <laughs> Are you making a meme? Uh, maybe. Yeah, I think I am. So it's check your Slack channel. Do, 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 do. <laughs> That's basically it. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah, that would be. I would definitely use that for for one of the tweets for this podcast. <laughs> oh, so he made one of those uh, the big brain memes. They, yeah, they call them expanding brain meme. Yeah. Yeah. It starts out as use the product as is, and it ends up as write your own custom firmware for a product you don't know anything about the design. <laughs> like you're talking about writing firmware and you haven't even seen anything on the inside. No, it could be all analog and witchcraft. All I know. Yeah. yeah but it, no, nah, there's no way given how many, how much functionality it has and how cheap it is. Right. Uh, that controller was not, not cheap. <sighs> well, problem is I don't remember how much it costs because car stuff and I just I don't even want to know <laughs> just don't show me my bank account just just auto pay yeah auto pay <laughs> just warn me if funds go low <laughs> yeah so I, I actually did search fan controller on Amazon just to see what if there was anything out there and most of it's like PC related stuff there's some crazy okay I build, Steve and I build our own PCs and build PCs for other people. There are some 
like, but we build like normal people PCs. Fu- uh, yeah, they're, they're based on function. Yeah, these everything that's popping up is like RGB, like bananas RGB. There's some crazy stuff. Like, I remember when I was uh when I was in high school, I built my own computer like case. It was kind of like into that whole like custom building computer cases and stuff. The amount of like we had to like, okay, this is, sounds like walking up the snow both ways, going to school kind of thing. But like we built our own RGB fans, like by drilling holes in fans and like hot gluing LEDs and stuff into them. Wait, you did back in the day? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. But I'm like, look at this. I'm like, oh, I can buy like, like, crazy 120 millimeter case fans that have magic moon series high performance cooling pc fans that have like applications that run on your computer so you can change the colors of the fans for like 20 bucks (laughs) i I don't honestly i don't really get the whole uh pc master race uh like craziness with especially with the rgb thing i I saw i saw a, a video card the other day that the side profile of the video video card had an LCD display on it, such that if you had a clear side case, you could have like GIFs and stuff running on the side of your video card. See, that's cool. No, come on. See, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so okay, it's not cool for us because we just like my computer is like a beastly gaming computer, and it's like in a four year rack mount, right? That sits on the floor. Yeah. Now, if you had that little screen on your keyboard, well, they do have a, that. They had, they have plenty. Yeah, they had uh, Logitech. Logitech had a keyboard like that back in the day, but yeah, that would be kind of cool. <laughs> it ends up, it ends up looking similar to uh, DefCon badges when when you start getting They're, into yeah. that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, like just goofy LEDs and Futurama gifts running around. Okay, let, let's let's move on. Let, let's let's talk about maybe something perhaps a little bit more serious uh, here. So <clears throat> on this I, podcast, no. yeah, no, sorry, I lied. Uh, so no, no, I, I, if, for the past couple of weeks, we've talked about some some interesting stuff about design, and I thought it'd be fun to have a quick uh, chat about uh, controlling your PCB cost. Um, and what I mean by that are like, what are the knobs that you as the designer have? either the knobs that you know about or maybe the knobs that you don't know about that you can turn that adjust the cost of your PCB. Because in a lot of ways, when you first start getting into PCB land, you just start trying things and then you realize, oh shit, this is expensive. Um, and, and there's a lot of those pitfalls. So I thought Parker and I could just kind of gig a little bit on a handful of things that uh, just, if you do this, there's a likelihood the cost will go up. Or if you do that, the likelihood will go down. So I, I have a list of what I call the easy ones. And if you go to m- most of your, uh, your big PCB uh, websites, PCB manufacturer websites, they have like online quoting tools that you can go and you can sort of just adjust these things that I'm talking about, these easy ones, and see for yourself what's changing. But there's nuance behind each one of these um, because you can't, those online quoting tools are only as good as they can be because uh, you can you can sort of game the system and uh, and and get something that that the online tool will be like yeah sure this is x dollars and then they the designers look at it and they crap themselves 
so it's it's something to keep in mind because you don't want to design something wacko into your system that ends up costing a bunch of money, but you uh, you assumed that it was acceptable because the online tool said it's fine. You know, and that applies across the board uh, with with pretty much everyone. So, sort of the first one, and it's probably one of the more easy ones to uh, consider, is just the size of your board. In general, as your board gets bigger, things get more expensive. But that's not necessarily always true, especially because it's really, really highly attached to quantity. Uh, so if you have one board that's really big, it that's probably going to cost you a bunch of money. That's in general how, it, how it's going to be. But if, if you're talking about thousands and thousands of boards and they're still big, then it kind of gets... Uh, all the all the overall costs get spread out of, among those boards, uh, and so the the overall cost per board is not going to grow linearly for sure. And in the size category, something to keep in mind is you might have an idea for I don't know a a single PCB that goes on the inside of a baseball bat and it's half an inch by twenty four inches long. Uh, that is a great example of a situation where, yeah, sure, maybe, just maybe an online quoting tool would give you a cost for that, but that's a really odd shape. Uh, something where you, you talk about extremes in any direction, you're going to start to see either somebody tell you no or the cost will skyrocket because you have something kind of goofy. And and the the thing about this, uh, size is, sure, you might be able to get... Um, pcbs made um in that size but you're talking about that extreme especially like let's say you had an inch by 24 inches the problem with the that size is you start running into assembly problems like a machine that can fit a board that big um because i know that there's definitely some uh machines out there that can only fit like a 12 by 12 panel mm-hmm. yeah uh and and Actually, what this, what a lot of this boils down to is, um, so Parker and I say DFM a lot, designed for manufacturing, and uh, that's a little bit of a catch-all term. And in a in a lot of ways, when you're in the middle of your design, I almost feel like there is a different term called DFC, which is designed for capability, as opposed to just designed for manufacturing. Are you designing such that someone is actually capable of building your thing? Because if you think about it, if Let's just say you had an infinite pot of money. DFM doesn't matter, right? Uh, like, I mean, you could you could have someone build anything if you just had enough money. But are there the right tools? Are there the right machines? Are there the right uh, capabilities to get your product made? That's why it's always worth uh, kind of designing around constraints that work with your manufacturer. We say it all the time. Contact, you know, once you pick your beloved manufacturer, contact them and find out and what their name is macrofab yeah 100 percent guaranteed every time <laughs> uh yeah so, so find out what their capability is and then start designing around that and i can tell you right now macrofab would not be really happy if you asked them for a one inch by 24 inch board it's not that they wouldn't be happy they'd just be like yeah we really can't do this and maybe we can work with you to adjust your design i, I think the biggest board the platform of like isn't it 300 millimeters by 300 millimeters? Yeah, I think the biggest board you can upload is like a 17 by 17. Um, I think it's what the platform says. Let me check real quick. But you can contact us at, at 
support at macfab.com because I definitely know I've seen a four inch by 36 inch board, which is in that extreme range. I, I don't think it's for, for a baseball bat, though. Wait, 36 inches long? Yeah, we built it. Uh, by hand? <laughs> like, did it go through the, the pick and place machine multiple times? Um, I don't know, actually, but yeah, it did go through the pick and place. Well, okay, so maybe I stand slightly corrected there. Uh, as in, if you have something that's super uber extreme like that, somebody can make it, um, but just know that you're probably going to spend a bunch of money. Well, yeah, that's the thing is our auto quoting tool can only handle up to like, I think I just looked, it's like 14.9 by 14.9 inches. Okay, so that's, that's over 300 millimeters. But so it's bigger than that, but we can still quote it and manufacture it. We just can't automatically quote it because it's such a outside the bounds of like the normal like 90% of what PCB's assembly is. You know that okay, so that's actually a good point right there. If if your design can be quoted on an online quoting tool, uh which I would think that a a large portion of designs can be, uh then you can expect that if you go to Macrofab or if you go to someone else, it's probably going to go through pretty smoothly if if it can be. But in a lot of ways, if you don't fit the criteria of those online quoting tools, um, you already know that you're not going to. Uh, I, I suppose what Park and I are talking about here is how to avoid like walking into a pitfall where you don't know that you're going to need that special quoting. So, mm-hmm. okay, so back to the easy ones. We talked about size. Uh, if if your design feels ridiculous, it's probably ridiculous. Like four inches by thirty six inches. There's there's got to be a really specific use case for that. Um, why couldn't it be more boards that are smaller that have connectors and cables in between them? There was some use case where a four by thirty six made sense, so they went for that. Um, another thing is panelization, which. That's something that you would work with your a contract manufacturer with, or or perhaps they would even just do it for you. Uh, controlling the the cost of your PCB, can it be panelized up into an array such that you can uh, distribute the the assembly cost across them? If you demand that your board gets assembled one by one, every single board one by one, and you need ten thousand boards, that's going to cost a lot more than if you can array it up in a hundred X array and then the machine runs it. Uh, as one big group. Now, I, the, what I'm going to say on this is back to your, your when you first brought it up is let your CM panelize it. They'll be a lot happier because your CM is going to know what's the best way to panelize it that's going to fit in their process and what's going to be the best price for their PCB fabricators in terms of um, their fabricators panel sizes because they 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 have a big chunk of FR4 right and they're they're routing out your boards out of that. And so they have some standard panel size that they're working with. So the CEM should be basically optimizing the their panel to fit that bigger panel. So you, they get less waste uh, wastage. Right, right. So, so yeah, like once your board is done, as in like the end result of what you're expecting in your design, you don't necessarily need to go through the exercise of adding PCB rails to your board or at, or panelizing everything. I, I've seen that a, a handful of times where somebody tries to micromanage the entire process of everything, and then the CM gets forced into building something that is potentially suboptimal for their process. 
because they were just I don't want to use the word demanded by the customer, but but it's just there's no wiggle room there to adjust them. So what I tell our customers is um, the customers that I deal with that will give me something that's pre-panelized. I'm like, you're going to get it panelized. (laughs) We're not going to break it out. You ordered your board like that. So you're going to get it like that. Yeah, yeah. you, You have to break it apart. And then they go, okay, here's just the one up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and the, I think that there's conflicting data on that. Or not data, but there's, like, if you go online, there's lots of tutorials on, like, here's how you panelize things so you can send it to your, your manufacturer. And that's great and all, but, um, and, that, and, and I say great and all in terms of perhaps you work in an industry where you can't give the original files to your uh, the original design files to your contract manufacturer, or you uh, you don't want your Gerber files to be uh, modified in any way. Perhaps you're restricted on that. That's fine. In that situation, work with your CM such that what you are panelizing is what they want or what they can do. But if you haven't even talked to your CM at all and you send them panelized files, like you're a few steps down the road uh, that you should be thinking maybe a little bit earlier in the game. Yeah, because sometimes the CM, if you, if that's your case, the CM will give you like, hey, this is our specifications for our panels. Like MacCraft's got a lot of different ones, like maximum number of parts that can go on a panel. Which so th- that I mean that's like the big thing that dictates you know how many boards you can put on a like if you have a really high density small board, you're only going to be able to put um like. 20 of those on a panel you can't put 100 even though 100 could probably fit onto a 12 inch by 12 inch panel you you run into that part limitation number um and that's just for like safety factor on like on throughput through your pick and place machine well yeah if you think about that too uh not not only just throughput but let's say i don't know let's say each board is a thousand dollars worth of parts if you got twenty thousand dollars on your hypothetical array and something goes wrong, yeah, you're at twenty thousand dollars. But what if what if something goes wrong and, and a whole hundred array is is destroyed on a thousand dollars worth of parts per per thing? Like it stacks up real fast, you know? Yeah, uh, that's a little extreme though. <laughs> it's usually not a thousand. <laughs> a little bit. Where the parts? Oh, you've been you've been talking about extremes for everything, so yeah, pretty much, yeah. So avoid the extremes. That's usually the you'll you'll be good, right? So <clears throat> the next thing to consider is your base material that uh, what your board is actually made of. So uh, generally, you know, you're talking about FR4. I don't even necessarily want to talk about the other materials because it's one of those situations where if you know the material, then you know you need it almost in a way. Uh, but but the TG rating, that's something you, you'll see on those online uh, calculators. So the TG rating is the glass transition temperature. It's basically how much heat the board can handle. And it goes from some low number to some high number. And the cost uh, increases along with that. So the, the, the question is, uh, do you just arbitrarily want to pick the high number because it's high number equal good, right? Uh, it depends on a lot of factors. And it depends on what the board is going into. If it's just like an IoT device on the wall, that just sits in someone's house, you don't necessarily need a high TG rating. Um, it's mostly um, how I pitch this to people is it's what your, what processes your board has to go through to be manufactured. Correct. 
Yeah, if um, if, if your board ever really needs rework on it, or if it's ever going to be touched again, or if it needs hand work on it, or if it's going to go through multiple machines that are very hot, then you probably need a slightly higher PG rating. And a lot of times you can figure this out by looking at your design. Um, if you have double-sided assembly, you're going to need a higher TG rating. Um, if it's lead-free, you're going to need a higher TG rating. Um, a big one is that it always the biggest one is is BGAs. If you have a B, especially a large array, um, like a hundred-pin BGA, you're going to want one of the high. You want a higher TG rating because the whole thing with the TG rating is is a higher TG rated board is going to flex less under heat because it's going to be more rigid under temperature and it's going to be, it's going to get less soft in the reflow, so to speak. And that that's the biggest, um, one of the biggest pro- hurdles, I guess, in, in BGA assembly is you got to keep everything coplanar. The moment something slightly gets off, you're going to have one side of the BGA will collapse. So we talked about that. So what TG ratings do y'all normally run? We normally do somewhere in the range of 140, 150. Okay, yeah. You can see a, a lot of those online calculators, they start out at like 130. Or even less. <laughs> or less. And if especially if you're doing lead-free, everyone out there, do not pick those. Because even during one pass at lead-free temps, pads will pop off your board. But yeah, I, even on the rework thing too, is like a TG like 130 board will lift pads like crazy. Like when I first started doing boards as a hobbyist, um, I was buying cheap the cheapest boards I can ever get. And I, I didn't even know the TG rating. They're probably like TG like 90 or 100 <laughs> or something like that. And it's just paper yeah, the moment we, yeah, That's the thing is like the moment you had to do any kind of rework or you left your soldering iron on a pad too long, the pad would lift. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yeah. I just thought that was normal until I started using like TG one seventy boards. <laughs> or, or yeah, if, if you have if you have to hot air uh, an IC off, oh, yeah. if you ever have to do that on low TG boards, you have a you have a much much higher chance of DLAM and just like actually bubbling in the in the board, and then it's effectively garbage. So, so another thing. Uh, uh, that that you'll see is is trace slash space. A lot of times you see that as two two numbers, a number slash a number. Um, where trace space is what is the minimum width of traces on your board, and then what is the minimum spacing in between traces on your board? I think a lot of people get confused about this one because they're like, oh, my EDA tool allows me to put a four thousandths trace on the board, and I put them two thousandths away from each other. And like, yeah, of course, your EDA tool will allow you to do anything. Uh, but you know, if you're asking for tolerances in of of that, you know, extreme, then your price is going to go through the roof. Uh, so you, it's always worth asking yourself, like, what? First of all, like, what is the minimum pitch of of like out of all the ICs on my board? Which one has the tightest pitch? That one's probably going to define what your trace space is on your board. Uh, so if you're working with like big monster chips, and I say monster, like SYC8s or something like that, um, if that's like the, the 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 tightest pitch you have, well, then you can effectively manufacture the cheapest board because you don't need really tight spacing. 
but if you're if you're talking about really really tight BGAs or something like that, you might need to spend some extra money to get your tray space um, uh, a little bit tighter. So the the smaller your traces and the closer they they are, the more expensive your board gets. That's just the rule of thumb. Uh, minimum hole size is something as well. I see a lot of problems with people just like putting really, really tiny vias on boards that have no reason to have really, really tiny vias on them. Uh, and vias are the What's ones tiny? that kill it. Like 3,000th hole vias oh, with okay, a 4,000th yeah. annular ring. You know, something like yeah. super tiny. Uh, in, in fact, so what I've, what I've found in my own designs that, that tends to work really well is... Um, I have default via sizes that I use for most of my designs, and they're fairly big, like 12 thou hole, 24 thou annular ring. That's actually a, a pretty sizable That's via. That's pretty chonk. Yeah, it's a chonky <laughs> via. And here's the thing. I start with that. And if I can actually pull the layout off, with, like if you start with a blank canvas with a big via and you actually pull it off, great. If I get to the point where I'm like, I just can't do this layout without going smaller, Okay, fine. Then I then I figured it out. But if I start yes. small and then I screw up the entire design, I'm like, well, I just added cost for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, I, um, I do a very similar thing. Except my spec is is um, it's tighter than I, I call it the ten ten ten. <laughs> ten mil trace, ten mil spacing, yeah. ten mil drills. Yeah, you know. Okay, so we found that eight eight is um with with trace spacing, you don't in, incur a bunch of extra costs down to eight eight. Correct. Uh, yeah. And, I think at Mac Five you have to go below five five. Oh, well, that's pretty awesome, actually. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, eight eight, and then big chunky vias uh, tends to make things. Yeah, I I just start with ten 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 is my defaults because also sounds cool. <laughs> actually, that's a, that's that's a pretty good rule of thumb because ten 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 is probably not going to cost you extra at most points. It. I've never had to incur any extra cost ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've been able to do like, I think Pinatar's old. No, I think that back. Pinatar's got some six mil on it, but um, it doesn't. Uh, does but what I'm building it doesn't incur any cost. But yeah, I start with ten, ten, ten. So the next thing on the list is surface finish. Uh, so how your uh, pads are actually plated. So. Are you okay with doing hassle or lead-free hassle? Because those are going to likely be your your cheapest. Hot air solder leveling, I think is what it uh, mm -hmm. stands for. That's exactly what it is. Uh, and then uh, and then there's a handful of other ones. Enig being one of the industry favorites, but there's uh, God, there's there's at least three or four more out there. Typically, hassle is just your 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 cheapest uh, across the board. If you can get away with lead if your industry allows for it then you, you probably know that but don't just go and click hassle on your pcb guy just because it's like well that's cheap and like that works out well you might be getting yourself in a trap there uh so sort of the this is the opposite extreme like if you go to the way cheap side you might be violating some laws uh by just picking hassle but do you really need like organic plating on your boards uh is I mean that's an that's an extra cost on top of things. I like I like my plating to be lit to be free range, <laughs> yeah. organic free range plating. <laughs> Love yeah. it. Um, no, no, this is this is a uh, a good good one because backfab we default to to Enig, but we allow other options. Um, and main reason is because we don't know 
if we if you need to be how, how planar your board needs to be this goes back to how planar your board needs to be if you got big parts or all through hole then do lead free hassle all the way oh it's right? so super easy and a solder is like a dream yeah whereas okay now you got a bga that's got 100 pins everything's got to stay flat that's the that's the benefit of enig is enig is super flat and consistent and so it allows it so that the paste will lay super flat and you'll get good reflow on it so one of the that's the main differences that's why we, what what which one would you pick how plain how coplanar do your your board needs to be because hassle is is if you look at it under a microscope it's pretty wavy oh yeah well i mean it when they say hot air solder leveling like it, it literally they dip it and then a big like air blade goes across it and just blows solder off of it like it's not very level yeah hassle with lead is a dream to solder though like because like everything already has solder on it <laughs> yeah uh okay so this this last one in the easy group i find people violating all the time for no reason whatsoever and it's super annoying um it's copper weight a, so many i've seen so many situations where people just arbitrarily think that they need heavier thicker copper on the outside of their board and they don't have a good reason as to why uh, a lot of times extra copper weight is there uh, to aid in current capability uh, across your board you would be surprised how much a trace how much current a trace can actually conduct or carry uh, there's plenty of online calculators if you need to figure out you know your temperature rise of your traces and how much you can actually handle through a trace but uh, if, if you're just running like an Arduino, you don't need three ounce copper on your board. Like it's just, it's yeah. ridiculous. And, and there's not necessarily a, a big benefit. You don't get like better signal integrity from it. Yeah. And th this goes actually back to um, my 10, 10, 10, 10 mil, 10 mil tracing. Yeah. 10 ounce Is copper. a 10 mil trace over a reasonable distance on a circuit board is like one amp of current capacity. Yeah. It's a ton. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's actually interesting is is once you get past an amp though how big your traces need to get grows quite big oh for sure um yeah like if you need to actually pass like huge amounts of current through a board um you need to you need to pay really special attention to all of all of those but if you're just trying to escape your microcontroller all of your traces don't need to be 50 thou you know <laughs> like you're just not gonna you're not benefiting from doing that the um for and this is a really good example of uh, what i did to reduce costs on the pinotar is um there's some traces or some uh, i won't say uh traces some netless on my circuit board on that circuit board design need to handle 10 amps okay at like 50 volts so it's that's quite a bit of power and I could have easily had been like, oh yeah, let's just drop two ounce or three ounce copper on the board. That would have actually solve like a lot of design problems. <laughs> um, but I wanted the the uh, that those boards since these are actually large PCBs as well. They were quite expensive to run them that way. And so what I just did instead was, oh, I'll just run a trace on the top and the bottom, and then just via stitch them together. Mm -hmm. Done. Yeah, it's like two ounce copper except not. There's a lot of tricks you can you can 
do to uh, avoid these kinds of things. Because adjusting the copper weight of your board, um, it, it, well, it, it increases the cost of your board pretty quickly. It, it, it skyrockets really fast. And, and not to mention how much... Um, it's not really difficult, I guess, for your CM to assemble them because there's they know about two ounce and three ounce copper. And the thing is, you have to adjust your reflow profile. So your your first couple boards through your machine might not have the best, or panels through might not have the best yield until they iron that out. Absolutely, yeah. If 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 you're just arbitrarily putting two ounce copper on your external layers and and one ounce on your internal layers, uh. It takes a lot of extra heat to get that board into reflow, and so the default uh, reflow profile on uh, at your CM, it likely isn't going to cut it. They probably have to go turbo nuclear on that. Oh, just a little slower, <laughs> yeah. or a little hotter. Then, yeah, or both. Or well, yeah, whatever works for the recipe, right? Yeah. So oh man, that remember the old bravo reflow oven we had at macfab way back yeah, in the day? every every uh every zone was 100 percent, 100 percent, 100 percent. yeah oh, that was such an awful machine. I, how many times did you replace heat zones on that thing so this old reflow oven is a is a bravo and it was lead-free compliant however if you yeah, actually the bottom edge read, of lead-free compliant is if you actually read about like people who use this machine it was a lead it was a leaded reflow oven that the company just slapped a lead free symbol on because yeah it could totally get up to 260 degrees fahrenheit or celsius and no it can barely get there and so what would happen was or the heaters can get there the problem is all the supporting hardware can't handle that high of heat for that long of a duty cycle and so basically fan bearings for all the blower motors would just fail on it. They just cooked. And I ended up basically buying like high temperature bearings and then replace them like once a month. Yeah, it was kind of awful. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Because <laughs> you could just hear the fan, like one of the fans would start screeching. And then you're like, okay, at the end of today's shift, Parker, take them all apart, put new bearings in, put them all back together. And and I think there was another time where uh, the capacitors on the fan bit the dust too. Yeah, the capacitor because there were capacitor started blower motors, yep. and they were mounted onto the fans. And of course, those are also really hot, and the capacitors would fail. <laughs> we had a stock of those capacitors. I, I had a stock of bearings and capacitors. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, these are these are the things that happen at your CM that. You only hear here. The, your CM's not going to bitch to you about the customer about their capacitors going out in their oven. Oven. <laughs> that was such a long time, man. That was like six years ago at this point. Now, it was it was before that was going on before we even started this podcast. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So, uh, so there, there's one other thing I kind of want to cover here, and uh, this is the other segment, and I, I say it's not the easy ones to understand about controlling the cost of your PCBs, but it ends up being basically one element on your PCB that can really screw with your cost. And and before I go into this, I realize there's a handful of things I haven't touched here. We could probably spend a lot longer on it. I just want to touch on like these really obvious ones, like the things that are in your... Um, the online quote stuff. However, this next, these next items are not entirely in those online quoting things and they can screw you really fast, especially if you've designed them in and you didn't know they're expensive 
and they all reference vias. Vias, if you need to plug your vias or if you need to put conductive goop inside your vias or if you just... VN pad. Uh, VN pad, yeah. Or if you just decided that your board needed blind or buried or both uh, types of vias, that's an excellent way to make your board cost skyrocket. Uh, mainly because all of those things, everything I just said there, require that the not not only your CM but your um, PCB manufacturer they have to do special processes for every single thing there. Like almost every PCB manufacturer has their path that they take uh, to manufacture something. But as soon as you start adding these kind of off-ball weird um, items on there they have to either break their process or go to a different special process to handle these things. And they're difficult to get right, uh, so they cost a ton of money. And I think Parker mentioned it last podcast, like, vias are just expected on boards nowadays. But things like blind and buried vias are not necessarily expected, and you end up paying per via uh, individual cost and that adds up really really fast and to be frank I've seen people input boards uh, into uh, to get quoted where they didn't know that and they're just like man these blind and buried vias are really convenient I can get signals anywhere all over the board and their board just didn't even need it and they just yeah. did it because the ADA tool was like would you like to do this uh, <laughs> and, and, and ended up screwing the cost of their board and they had to redesign their board because it's like oh god like just the cost of the blind and buried vias was three times the cost of the board by itself, you know, because it was just pockmarked all over. Um, and for those who don't know, blind and buried vias are vias that uh, go from uh, one layer to a different layer on a board, but, but potentially not the other layer. Uh, so like a blind via can go from one of the external layers to one of the internal layers, but not all the way through the board. And a buried via... It uh, allows you to go from one of your internal layers to a different internal layer. Uh, so it's a via that you wouldn't even be able to see from the outside of your board. And if you think of a cross-section of your PCB and you think of blind and buried vias, and then you ask yourself, how does somebody actually make this? That's why it's expensive. Because as soon as you start <laughs> thinking about it, you're like, oh my God, this has got to be really difficult to make. And yes, that's the, that's true. It is very difficult to make. So I... um. What's really funny is um, a long, long time ago, well, I'll say a long time ago, it was four years ago at this point. Actually, yeah, four years. No, five years. Five years ago, DigiKey shipped out some of some rulers. Oh, yeah. To like, I think we got them in our, in our Mac, like they sent those to Macrofab. A lot of people have these rulers now. Um, but on on, they have a blind via silk screen that's just pointing to an arrow and you can't see anything. Oh, no, that says buried via. Yeah, it's a buried via. Or, yeah. Bur yeah, buried via. Yeah. Um, and actually, it says March 2016 on it. Ooh, there you go. Um, but I actually, I'm actually going to take this to work tomorrow. I'm going to x-ray this. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, did they actually, there actually put is one, one in there? there? Did they spend or the money just... on all of those rules? Or is that just like a convenient joke? I think it's a, I think it's a joke because you can't see it. I'll normally so yeah um, although like how great would it be if you x-ray it and there's like rick astley in the uh in the internal <laughs> layer or something like that yeah <laughs> um so speaking of digikey digikey um what uh bumbled monk is it bumbled monk 
yeah, on uh, on our Slack channel, showed uh, our Slack channel some really cool technology that they've implemented at at DigiKey, and DigiKey is able to now print information on the back side of like cut tape, and so like what the value is, what the manufacturer part number, and like a barcode and stuff. They print it on the back side, and so then now you can. Like if you just have a piece of cut tape lying around, you know what's on the cut tape now. Super cool. Which which if you've ever dealt with cut tape for five minutes, like you'll know that this is actually a really cool thing. Because uh, if you as soon as you take some cut tape and you you leave it on your desk for a little bit of time, you come back, you're like, I have no idea what that is. Yeah, what value is that? Get the multimeter. Right. Yeah. Or <laughs> yeah, uh, capacitors are even worse because they're just all the same color, all the same size. Everything is the same. And it's just like, I have no idea. Is Everything this the is point one fifty volt or is this the point one sixteen volt? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the the the, uh, the information on the back is really cool. At the same time, I'm pretty sure DigiKey uh, will actually print your custom part number on there as well if you put that in one of their fields i I don't remember exactly how it works but uh so if you have internal part numbers uh that can be printed on the back as well that is really cool so right now they're only doing it on eight millimeter tape which is the majority of tape um i assume they're going to expand that to others though and if i recall right uh i mean we can be corrected in uh in the slack channel if we're wrong here, but um, this this applies to a variety of parts at the moment, um, and it's not necessarily like an opt-in kind of situation. It's just if the part can be printed, DigiKey will be offering that. I don't know exactly when this goes live. I know it will be sometime soon-ish, though. So um, when you start order- ordering parts, you'll just see it show up. Yep. I'm gonna check the reels that show up tomorrow. Ooh. You guys probably get DigiKey every day uh and mauser and like arrow and everywhere we get like every single distributor every single day day. yeah (laughs) and like many many boxes of them right so you know how um at macrofab hq um so we expanded into the the parker uniform place that's next door yeah it was right and and so and we moved like development and stuff over the West. This is pre COVID moved them over the West campus, like sales and, and all that stuff over there. And so that entire 10,000 square foot plus, plus um, the new spot that's right next door. That's think about it, that's all like just parts. Parts, <laughs> that's, that's really parts cool. just customer parts, Bowser parts. Did you keep parts? There's so many parts. <laughs> I can't wait. I, 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 hopefully, I open up a box tomorrow and and I see this. That'd be cool. So, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Dillon. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack.